still snowy up here in Lynn Canyon. Wandered up the Frederick Varley Trail alongside a river. I hope that river's not too distracting. I'm also having a little snack here with Traubin the Great Picker. Come along to commune with the woods on this snowy day. Snow is hard packed enough to walk on top of it. Don't need any snowshoes. A little icy for cross country skiing. There's been a snowy winter here in Vancouver. And sure enough, did a little bit of cross country skiing around Rice Lake. Then a little bit of wintertime adventures and trying to get this 2009 off to a lovely start. Which included a trip for dim sum on Chinese New Year Day in Chinatown, Vancouver. Nothing better than an afternoon of dim sum. Now, this Riverside dim sum. Oh, I was going to tell you, Frederick Varley. I was going to tell you about the trail. So Frederick Varley. Uh, now, you may have heard if you're into, like, uh, you know, paintings and Canadian history and watch CBC documentaries, you probably know about the Group of Seven. It's a group of Canadian artists that kind of rose out of the, the post-impressionist movement uh, and sort of put Canada on the, on the forefront of uh, the world art movement. And really what they're focusing on is nature for nature's sake, where a lot of times nature it was like man's interaction with nature was the theme of paintings. But these artists really took Canada's natural beauty and made it the forefront in their paintings. The, the, the most well-known of this group of seven is Emily Carr, uh, and she does uh, did these remarkable paintings, limited trailer up in the Queen Charlotte's, and was the real deal, and made these remarkable pictures that really started to chronicle the degradation that was going on and the abuse that was happening in these forests. Oh, Frederick Varley, he lived right here in this neighborhood. But what I can learn about him is he was a cantankerous old drunk. And he had a horrible temper. And he was a bit of a, you know, he had moved over from England and went back and forth from Scotland. And, and uh, he was a drinker and an ornery old guy. But when you look at his paintings, these soft, gentle paintings, of these beautiful views of Lynn River, of Lynn Creek, so many years ago. But then you think about, you know, you think you look at his paintings, like, oh, this nice serene man in touch with nature communing with the rocks and the river and the trees in this remarkable little place. And this Varley Trail now has kind of like become an impromptu memorial for people to go make little shrines for their passed on uh, friends and relatives in rather creative manner. And so they're always drawn this, this beautiful energy on this, on this uh, little stretch that it's named for. But then you learn about the artist and you go, ar, ar, ar. A grumpy old pirate. Does that influence the way that you think about his art? Or, when you bring that forward to modern times, when just this last week, a young man who's spent his whole life training to make his country, country people proud, winning accolades far and wide, not limited to uh, 14 Olympic gold medals, two silvers, most of them in dramatic, record-setting fashion. He owns every record of every event he ever swims in. Yeah, I'm talking about Michael Phelps. So here he is, 22, 23. He's grown up in the pool. He has ADD. He's been in a little trouble before with a little drunk driving, but that's okay. The sponsors will still come on board. He was a 19-year-old, and he was only at the legal limit. That's okay. We'll still be your sponsor. But then there's a photograph of him ripping a bong tube out of a nice piece of roar glass, by the way, a nice $600 piece of glass bong there. Uh, I, I mean, uh, uh, cannabis water pipe. What's the proper, what's the proper term <laughs> um, for cannabis use only? And then the cavalcade of media pundits who are all suddenly fucking experts on adolescent upbringing 
vis-a-vis retarded drug rules. And they all got their opinion. And they all go, oh, well, he's going to lose all their sponsors now. And then all those blood-sucking parasites who surround him, all these PR flacks, are all like, first, they try to bribe the paper to not publish the, the, uh, the picture, right? This is a, a paper out of England where they all publish just about anything. They love stirring up controversy, as it were. First, they tried to bribe him and offered Michael Phelps' service as a columnist for this paper. Michael Phelps' swimming musings. Please don't publish that picture of Michael Phelps' bong hit musings. And uh, we'll do some public appearances. They go in full damage control, which is weird because usually in instances like this, they go into denial mode. Oh, he was just horsing around. Someone told him it was um, a special prop that they do at their fraternity and he didn't know. And then I love how all the sources cited in the story are all anonymous sources. Anonymous drunk frat boy partygoer says, Oh man, he was totally macking on all the chicks and ripping bong tubes like an old bro, says anonymous douchebag. <laughs> okay, so here's the problems. First of all, Michael Phelps, um, uh, he's 22, 23, you can't make excuses because he's been around in the public eye for quite some time, but... At some point, you as a human being have to say, am I ready to sell my soul to a company like Kellogg's who has a moral perpetuity clause in their contract? Other known as the Kobe Bryant clause, I think. You know, it's like when Kobe got arrested for, uh, for slutting around uh, and, uh, you know, hookers and coke in the hotel room or whatever it was. Um, you know, it's like you drop by sponsors because of moral perpetuity. There's certain things you can't be seen in public doing. Apparently drunk driving is okay, though. Because they hired him as a drunk driver, but a bong hit. And then everyone's going, oh my God, his life is ruined. Millions of dollars out the bank, out of his bank. You know what? This may freak out, but maybe he did it just because he wanted to be excellent at something. Maybe he wanted to do it so he could say, wow, in the original spirit of the Olympics, as an amateur, as it were, I'm passionate about achieving the very finest pinnacle my sport can offer. All that hype about the torpedo, done. Mark Spitz, done. I want to be the best. Maybe that was the motivation. And maybe the difference to him between $1 million and $40 million at this point of his life doesn't really mean a big deal. Maybe he just wants to be loved. Maybe he just wants to have some fun. Well, then you go, oh, well, he's a big boy. You know, he has to take responsibility and realize everything he does now is in the public eye. So what? So let him be who he wants to be in the public eye. Is he setting a bad example for kids? Well, you can't say that. The guy's in incredible shape and the most decorated Olympic athlete ever. And he de- seems like a decent dude. You know, he's overcome uh, some d- a difficult upbringing and uh, with ADD and struggling and a lot of stuff and having low self-esteem to reach the highest pinnacle of his sport. And you people are worried. These people are worried about sponsorships and millions of dollars. He's lost millions of dollars, and then he comes out and just I, my heart went out for him having to come out with that stupid PR hack who wrote you know having to read the apology written by this uh, this guy. I'm really sorry, my adolescent behavior. You know what? How about the conversation changes to the law is fucked, man. And at some point, people have a right and a, to live, to do things and consume plants, in this case, that don't harm other people. Now, I don't think that people should be allowed to drink and drive because that can be potentially harmful for other people. But going to parties and smoking a little bit of reefer, that's not harmful. Do you know how I know? Because I've tried it time and time again. Never been a problem. So, uh, with that, I'm going to give a little something-something out here to Michael Phelps. This is some New York City diesel. And uh, I hope 
Uh, with, with, with the wisps of smoke that drift up in here into the North Van sky above Lynn Creek, I will send my kindest thoughts to you, Michael Phelps. Don't let the bastards get you down. Hey, Uncle Weed, why don't you break out some of that private stash? So, in some ways it's strange how lovely it is up here in Lynn Creek. Because this is with the first area, one of the first areas to be clear-cut. When the industrialized forest industrial complex came up here, and the end of the line cafe where I often will go enjoy a warm beverage, was the end of the line for the uh, log plumes, and that's where they would connect with the trains to take them down to be shipped off to, uh, or railed off to wherever. And so this whole little lovely canyon that we sit in that's so peaceful and serene is all the second generation, third generation of a time gone past. The time when Frederick Varley sat up here having his pipe and perhaps a wee nip of scotch and painting these, ro- these very rocks that sit before us. The water has changed, but the rocks are still the same. So, uh, this is usually the part of these uh, my little programs that I forget to do, because uh, and that's like the part where I start a conversation, then two years later I keep on meaning to follow up on the thing that we were talking about, and people send in emails, and but you know I'm usually out and about, and uh, it's hard to like, you know, follow up on this kind of stuff. But there's a couple on my mind that came out of this spiel from. Main Island about being in New Mexico and I uh, said hey come on in and send in your stories and uh, and also volunteer to help edit so I want to give a special uh, hello out to uh, the state of New Hampshire uh, live free or die the secret enclave of J.D. Salinger which is also home to the, your, uh, the new Chugalon Padawan as it were um, I, I won't identify him here but uh, he is going. Uh, he is learning the ropes, and will soon be uh, helping fill the hopper full of crunchy, the crunchy whole wheat goodness of Chugalon podcasts. So, so, I, but uh, I had a couple other stories that um, I managed to bring along uh, that also came out of that. So, um, so anyway, the other part about the story was uh, Happy Vappy coming out to New Hampshire, to New Hampshire way. I think I will call it an aromatherapy dispenser or some, something, something like that. I'm not exactly sure yet. And uh, so shout out to uh, Brett, the producer, uh, my longtime uh, colleague on these uh, hijinks, who's also got a few more that he's uh, grinding through the grist mill. Whew. All right. Uh, the swimmer says, hello, fellow, hi, fellow stoners. I want to start this story off by giving a brief explanation. And in this case, it needs a little bit of background. I am a blind person and have been blind all my life. This wasn't my first stoned experience, but it was unquestionably the most unusual I've had. I was in Florida, which is weird. We've been there. It was, it was weird. Strange. Unusual. That's his terms. Spending some vacation time with a friend. We partook of some herb, and then we went to the store to get some groceries. Needless to say, we were both nice and baked. Good. While we were in the store, I forgot for a brief moment that I couldn't see. So what did that look like? Um... And I started to run off with the grocery cart, which could be a calamity there in a crowded grocery store with the jars of mayonnaise there on the shelves and stuff. You can fall down and break them. I don't know if there was anyone staring at us. Well, I guess you don't have any way to say. Uh, but my friend said, whoa, whoa, stop. I didn't run into anything with the cart, and I didn't get hurt. Thank God. No, no incidents. But I stopped when she told me to stop. But we both felt the incident was funny. This is the only time in my life that I remember actually forgetting I couldn't see. This experience was both awesome and funny, and for that brief moment where I had forgotten I couldn't see, I felt no fear. So that's fucking sweet, right? Like, I had a, 
I have a little tiny tinge of experience like with this because like I don't have um, depth perception, right? So don't ever ask me to be on your volleyball team, right? And I didn't really understand this, but I have a, a really hard time parallel parking. I bump my shoulder and shit on stuff. So the eye doctor finally explained it to me when I was about 14 and how my eyes are seen and like, you know, independently of one another and only ever, one's ever working at one time. Um, and that caused me like a whole recursive, recursive loop on an LSD trip one time where I'm like, so the whole world, except for a swimmer, and, and a few others of our ilk are seeing the world like a whole other thing, like things appear closer. And uh, so to me, everything looks like a Van Gogh painting. So thanks for that. I don't know uh, where that was story uh, was from, was filed from. It was filed from the Internet. Um, all right, here's the next one. Um, this one I alluded to a little bit in an episode a few weeks ago. I've really been meaning to sit down and clackety-clack a bunch of responses out, but... Um, you know, what can I tell you, man? I'm like, uh, I'm out, you know, I got a, a few new projects coming uh, uh, that I'm working on that maybe I'll tell you about. Uh, some more arts and crafts. Um, anyway, we shared some over years in Japan in the 90s. Wish I had known about the counterculture back then. Hmm. It, it was weird for me, editorial note, it was weird for me because really the peeling back the real critical layers of the onion, as it were, uh, happened kind of by accident. Anyway, I just caught it at the end of my stay in Japan in 05. We were there for 14 years. Wow, long time. I miss it daily, but I have good memories to think about. Yeah, Japan's just intoxicating. Uh, it, it totally changes you. Um, it's both modern and ancient at the same time, says, says me. Um, back to the letter. Now we are in Spain and enjoying our time here. Lovely. Morocco is an entry place and just hours from the house. And you go there and they go, hush, 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 hush. I listen to your Uncle Weed podcast and I'm caught up uh, on the supply. Thank you. Uh, I was wondering what it would take to see a copy of Hemp and Road. I'll address that later. As I said, I'm catching up on your productions. Enjoy what you do. Thank you very much. Thanks for your additions and listening. Okay, so tell me how to handle my son, who is 17 and interested in the weed love lifestyle. I don't know if he's mature enough to handle dealing uh, about it, but I'd at some point uh, enjoy sharing my enjoyment with him. Um, now, I got a little bit of... I've held on to this one, and I really wanted to take some time to respond to it. But instead, I'll just give you a, uh, a short answer here. Um, I don't talk about like my family life because I kind of keep that separate here from my hijinks. But um, this is a situation that I've had to deal with in a very uh, first-hand manner. And what I've defaulted to is tell the kids the truth because they're going to find out anyway. If he's 17 in Spain, he's already learned about it. I spent some time in uh, Granada, Spain, not too long ago um, with a friend who also at the time had a 17-year-old son. And he was just like, oh my goodness, can I do this and introduce it and I think once they see it in a normalized culture where uh, they can kind of understand how to keep it in perspective so when you have this speech saying so our situation is different and even though uh, in some places they can deal with it as a normal part of everyday life like you know it's commonly smoked there in Spain it's a little different regionally but no big whoop right Um, but our situation is a little bit different our situation will at some point change and your life will be long and varied but uh, you have to play within the rules that we got uh, dealt to us right now. So if you're going to do this, this is how you have to take precautions and be cool with it. But at the same time, uh, it sounds like your son is an athlete. And um, I also have some experience with this. And if they want to continue their career as an athlete of any kind, as we learned from the Michael Phelps incident and hundreds more from Ricky Williams in NFL football and any other sport you can think of where they're harassing the people for having a little bit of a hootage, you kind of got to have the talk saying, you know what? Um, at some point in your life, around this 18, 19 years old, you kind of got to decide which path you're going to follow, right? That you're going to at least have to rock for a little while. I clearly took one path that didn't involve uh, 
taking piss tests, but I also ran into that later in life. Um, so it's one of these things you kind of got to deal with. But I think by sitting them down and having a candid talk about it and say, at some point you're going to find out that I enjoy a puff too and I'm able to do it responsibly. Um, you know, certainly in my situation, I can't expect that no one's going to find out what I do by hiding it from them. And that's one of the reasons I'm, I'm very translucent about my lifestyle. And I think that's maybe the best way to handle it with uh, your son is to say, this is what we got. This is our situation. This is the lifestyle we've chosen. This is how we've chosen it. Okay. Any advice? <laughs> no, no. Do you have any input? You're, you're a parent. Oh, oh. How do you talk to your kids about weed? Well, what, what I do, what my parents told me. And what my parents told me when I was like 15 is that uh, my dad sat me down in his workshop and said, you know, dad, or, you know, you know, son, I, um, I used to do all that kind of stuff for many years. And then I realized it wasn't the best thing for me. And so I gave it up. But you are a teenager and you're going to be exposed to all kinds of things around you all the time that I'm going to have no control over. And you're going to want to experiment and do your thing. And all I want you to know is that I'm here for you. You can talk to me at any time. You can call me at any hour so you don't get in the car with some uh, idiot who's all wasted. And, and I'll come pick you up. No questions asked. And, and uh, you know, just know there's that respect there. And I think that was the best thing that my father did for me. And so that's what I pass on to my own child. Wow, that was fan fucking fantastic, dude. Well, I, I think I'm just, I'm, I think I just sh- shut up for a minute, man. That was really good. I, I just had to give that, I had to give that pep talk just yesterday, so to somebody else, to another parent, so it's kind of recycled. So it's as though it was planned. Where we, uh, it's a, it's a fully rehearsed uh, Chugalon production here. Oh, where's my next one? I had them organized here for a second. All right, uh, Scarborough dude. I mentioned Scarborough dude a few times. He lives in Scarborough. Uh, Ontario, Scarborough. It's like the Surrey of Ontario. And uh, used to live here in North Van. But anyway, he does this great podcast. And I really enjoy it. He just tells his life story. And he's kind of a traveling businessman. Uh, he sent a note here. Uh, just wanted to send you a quick note before I hop on the Narita Express at Shinagawa and begin my journey home. Now, I mention this because I love his podcast from Japan because he... He'll get like a beer from a vending machine and some onigiri rice balls. You have the onigiri. You love the onigiris. But the umeboshi. Oh, I have, I have umeboshis at home. I got some. Oh, man. We yeah, the organic umeboshis. Oh. Umeboshis are like these little tart pickled plums. And I got the total dank when I get the, my uh, organic fruits and vegetables delivered by this Japanese service. So I got some. Anyway. Sweet. So he goes to these park benches and just like spiels about all the things he's noticing in a real stream of conscious uh, style. So I really like him. Uh, he says, listen to your Double Beer Fest podcast the other day and enjoy them very much. I'm glad you did. Has some good taste here while at the Ebisu Brewery in Tokyo. Now, Ebisu um, was my favorite beer in Japan, and they now will allow have micro and craft brewing in Japan, but they didn't at the time I lived there. But Ebisu, it was made by the Sapporo Company, but it's the, the one that really was done in the Bavarian tradition, where most of the Japanese beers, they put rice in the malt, um, and they're really, you know, like in the, in the wort, and... I've just got horrible hangovers from like the Asahi Super Dry and stuff. Plus, they were all oh, my. They love to play Get the Gaijin Wasted in Japan, but that's another story for another time. Um, especially their wheat whitey. Man, uh, you sure create a lot of stuff. That's a lifetime of creative output already. Uh, Scarborough Dude, um, I have even a few more things coming out that I'm really. This is the year that I'm really good at taking projects to 95% of the way done, but that last 5% is really the hardest. Uh, 90%? <laughs> 
<laughs> but this is the year that kind of like a lot of final 5% on that. Um, but he also puts out a note here for uh, what happened to your pals at Clubside Breakfast Time. Well, uh, as you long-time listeners know, that, uh, my first podcast that I ever did was with uh, the Unabonger, uh, Cosmo G. Spacely. And while waiting for a breakfast at the Clubside Cafe in Olympia, Washington, we'd do these uh, podcasts. But since I moved back up here, uh, you know, it's hard for uh, Cosmo to keep the momentum going. Uh, but I still love it, and I'm really proud of the shows we did. Scarborough Dude goes on and says, I used to listen to the podcast a lot and felt comfortable sharing time with them, which is really the core thing about a podcast. Do you feel comfortable sharing time? But nothing for a long time. We also gives a shout-out here to the Suburban Transpondency and Foreskin Radio, some other guys here in Vancouver that produce some podcasts. I met them at a little podcaster meetup thing through the guys who do Canadian Podcast Buffet and that podcaster across borders, which I wish I was going out to all that stuff and meeting all you uh, podcasters there in Eastern Canada because I love a trip. But, uh, you know. But anyway, Scarborough Dude's got some great shows out from China and Japan um, that I really uh, recommend uh, checking out. They're long shows, so if you've got a long commute, strap on the headphones and get comfy. All right, next is uh, our grow story. Uh, so here's uh, the grow my own story. It all started last year. Dun, dun, dun. In our old house, we had a killer rental overlooking the Sound and Olympic Mountains in the great northwest of Cascadia, says me. Very private space, except for one set of neighbors uh, we know, uh, know well and trust. Having a hard time finding tennis shoes when I got a good pair. I kept some seeds. Um, I was having a hard time finding tennis shoes, and when I did get a good pair, I kept some seeds. Two of them, it uh, looks like... Two of them took right away and started looking great. My partner was totally cool about it, and we kept them under the light in our kitchen. I cared for them, loved them dearly as anyone would, and I always made sure I did things right. Good. Okay. Part of my uh, stumbling. One day, we were both at home and decided to make a midday run to the liquor store. Very appropriate. So we could have cocktails on the sunny patio. Indeed. As I was driving away from our place, I saw countless squad cars and unmarked cars headed to our street. Ah, There was also a police helicopter. I called home and said something was up. Uh, There was no answer. In seconds, my phone rings, and uh, the caller said, Our house is surrounded. I freaked out. Neither of us thought about our tiny pair of tennis shoes under the light. Oh, so the seeds were planted in the tennis shoes is the part I missed there. Seeds planted in the tennis shoes. And they were there in the kitchen, and we wondered what the hell was going on. I turned around to head home, and I was told I could not go up the street. While they were telling me that, they were making announcements on the street to stay inside. Apparently, a bank robber had been tracked to the area between our house and the neighbors. Our neighbors were out of town. We were watching their dogs and house for them. They had guns drawn in our place and the neighbors. They broke into our neighbor's backyard and then into the basement of our place. At that moment, Jen rem- uh, uh, <coughs> um, remembers the plants in the kitchen. They have cops with scoped rifles trained on all the windows to our house. They're telling her not to move. Jen crawled to the... Ki- <laughs> she crawled to the kitchen, grabbed the plants, and flushed. Ah! <laughs> Police dogs are everywhere at this point. They take a, took a neighbor of ours out at gunpoint. It was insane. After about three hours, they realized the robber dropped the tracking device in our neighbor's trash can and was long gone. <laughs> wah, wah, wah. <laughs> I got home in time to see the last of the soil swirl down the bowl. A true heartbreak. Never did they set foot into the house. Needless to say, that was the end of my tennis shoe career. The feeling we both had was... Had was enough to prevent me from trying that one in this neighborhood again. Now we have a pretty classic story to share, but no homegrown shoes. (laughs) (laughs) Take care. Chugalon, my friend. Chugalon, back at you. Thanks for the awesome story. And that came along with a a CD and a postcard. I love packages. 
Okay, um, I got one more, but I need a quick little hoot. This one is about a dude's incident. Uh, he's a Briton living in Japan who got busted. So to follow up, because I, you know, I'm really the only one that really talks about this hemp in Japan kind of topic, besides my colleague, the Humpman. So um, I just want to put his story out there to the universe just so you know what the deal is. But pause for just a second while... See, I only got one sock on right now because I got a soaker in my boot. And my toes are starting to get cold because it's fucking, you know, it's winter time here in Canada. So hold on for a minute, all right? Now that's some curious correspondence. I'd like to tell you my story of being busted in Japan. I arrived at Kansai Airport last March with about 15 grams of marijuana. I bought it in Amsterdam and thought it would be okay as I'd traveled in and out of Japan for years and never been searched. This time, it was different. I don't really know why they searched me. The sniffer dogs weren't interested. Well, maybe the, the way that they tell that they're interested is something that we didn't recognize. Anyway, they discovered the stuff. Later that day, they searched my apartment and discovered about 20 grams there in the deep freeze. Pretty bland stuff. And I was hoping the import from Amsterdam was going to give me a better buzz. I hear you there. I was kept at the Kansai Kuko police station for 18 days, then transferred to the Sakai Detention Center in southern Osaka, where I spent a further 42 days, so almost two months in total. Even though I cooperated fully with the police, confessed, and didn't try to hide anything, the prosecutor demanded a two-year prison sentence as I had a significant amount. I've lived in Japan for 18 years. Wow. And this is my first offense. In the trial... The judge regarded my addiction as a big problem as I'd admitted to first smoking cannabis when I was 19. I'm now 54. This is actually a, what is a year so old? You know, what can I tell you? He said he was just giving me an 18-month sentence suspended for four years. Very surprisingly, I was granted bail after the first court appearance, the hearing and presenting of evidence. This cheered me to no end as it seemed to indicate the judge and prosecutor did not regard me as a dangerous society. At present, I'm waiting to see what immigration has to say uh, if they decide to deport me or not. I did try to get my lawyer to emphasize the relative harmlessness of cannabis abuse and the fact that I had stopped smoking, sometimes at months at a time, because I couldn't buy it, and also this, this was a victimless crime, smoking alone in my own house. This was ignored, not surprisingly, and not brought up at the trial, but I suppose the lawyer had good reasons. He was pretty indifferent about the case to begin with, and only after constant prodding by friends did he start working a bit harder. Yeah, just he didn't give a shit. Uh, I was still amazed at the possible harshness of the sentence. According to the lawyer, the maximum penalty for smuggling or possession of cannabis is five years in jail or a 30 million yen fine. Detention in Japan was extremely boring and there were hundreds of rules to be obeyed. Sitting on a hard floor, this is Japan, no chairs allowed, was very uncomfortable for me. If it wasn't for friends bringing me books and a decent cushion, I may have tried suicide in detention. This is what it does to people. The food was reasonable, though, and I wasn't made to pay court costs, although my lawyer charged me his standard fee of $4,500 U.S. dollars. So now I'm out of a well-paid job and a lot poorer and have the possibility of being kicked out of Japan. For anyone else contemplating bringing drugs to Japan, I'd advise don't take the risk. Buy in Japan, grow in Japan. Seeds are apparently legal, as there's no THC, but they're always confiscated, but don't bring it in. So there you go. So then, the reason I'm bringing this up now, because it's a little bit old, is I got an update. So I followed up with him uh, to get a follow-up on a story. He wrote me back more recently and said, I'm still in Japan. As I had permanent residency, my visa is not restricted to any length of time. So at the moment, it's still running. I'm sure if I'd had any other visa, uh, immigration would just let it finish and not allow me to renew it. This seems to be their policy, make life difficult or impossible for foreigners to remain in Japan. Uh, so they just leave them to give up and leave themselves. Then there's no possibility to complain. 
Detention at the airport was difficult as I had little contact with visitors, not a lot of any writing materials to record the questioning. Apparently, another foreigner was in detention at the same, for the same charge. After he'd been arrested, they were probably searching every foreigner at the airport. About, um, after about two weeks, I was transferred to the detention center in Osaka. Um, considering the 99% conviction rate for indicted people in Japan, I was judged guilty long before the trial. Um, and so it seems for most others that demanded the two years hard labor because 30 grams of cannabis was a significant amount, according to his words. Um, so he encourages me to spread his story, so I have done that. And he doesn't know what he's going to do next in his life. Um, he uh, puts a link up to this guy named Davido, which is his uh, Japaneseification of Dave. So there's a lot of good people in the world named Dave. But he's a foreigner. I've read his site for years where he talks a lot about the uh, foreigner, foreigner prejudice in Japan. I'll put that link up there. But he finishes saying, many thanks. Uh, if I do return to the UK, a strong possibility. The first thing I will probably do is celebrate with a hefty bong of Dutch skunk. And with that... I will send uh, my best wishes out to each of it, to, 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 to those kind wishes and to anyone who needs them anywhere they are. So to you around the world, from us up here on Lynn Creek and the, with the ghost of Frederick Farley, keep on chugling on. You've been chugling along with Uncle B and Wild Hey, this is uh, Ferdinand from Happy Vappy, and I just wanted to send out a congratulations to the winners of the Taxi Cab Yellow Happy Vappies. And um, if you ever need a Happy Vappy, make sure you visit Uncle Weed uh, and purchase through him. <laughs> I promise to spend all the money on tasty goods.